Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 297, Assessing Craig's Trinity Monotheism with Dale Glover, Part 2. In this episode, Canadian apologist Dale Glover and I continue to explore the meaning of and the difficulties facing a unique Trinity theory propounded by well-known Christian philosopher and apologist Dr. William Lane Craig. On this theory, God is, quote, one soul, which supports three centers of consciousness, which are understood to be the three persons of the Trinity. He calls it Trinity monotheism. The last area that I wanted to sort of probe you on is, so that's great when it comes to a human being, I can kind of get behind what you're saying and how that makes sense in terms of the concepts there. But when it comes to God, who is the only maximal great being, Perhaps this idea that God is just oneself isn't logically coherent. There are arguments, you alluded to uh, a couple in, in your work, but, you know, like Richard Swinburne's argument that God, in order to actualize love, there has to be three individuals. Why three? Well, there has to be at least another individual for you, you know, to enact love as an actualized thing as opposed to just potentiality. Well, why three? Because... To be selfless love, there needs to be a third individual for the second person you love to love, and that third person loves them without you needing to be involved at all. So why not four? Occam's razor, the, the simplest explanation is the most likely, and three is the least amount of persons needed to, to an actualized love. And the sort of thing that I wanted to raise with you there is that I, I don't buy this argument myself and i know you don't but mm -hmm. the thing with you is i've seen in your other work you do seem to hint that you take issue with the fact that hey when jesus was on earth during his time of humiliation he wasn't actively omnipotent he wasn't um consciously omniscient william Lynn craig has this notion that they were subliminal or sublimated during his time as a human being in some way and I'm wondering if you're going to argue that, well, no, in order to be divine in any sense, you have to be actively omniscient and, and consci consciously omniscient and that sort of thing. Why can't the Christians say, well, in order for God to be a maximal great being, he, there has to be this active love. You can't just exist as a potential. I'm not sure I understand how you're tying this in with omniscience, but let's talk. You can press that again after I describe Craig's view. So the full argument that you gave was the Swinburne argument. Basically, he claims that if there's one divine person, there have to then, in eternity, also be exactly three divine persons. So he thinks there can't only be one, and then he tries to show that this has to stop once you get to three. Yeah, most people don't accept that argument. Most Christian philosophers that are Trinitarians don't accept that argument. In particular, they don't see how you stop it, because uh, if it's so wonderful to produce another divine person, wouldn't it be even more wonderful to just keep on going? In Craig's hands, when I remember, he sets aside that second step of the argument. For Craig, it's basically an anti-Unitarian argument. He thinks that the idea of a single-person God is incoherent. Partly, he likes this as a stick to beat the Muslims with, but it would work against Jews and against Unitarian Christians like me and against uh, oneness people if it were a convincing argument. So, 
basically it's, it's the idea that it's logically impossible for there to be a single divine person. And the reason is because that you have to say that God is perfectly loving and a single divine person wouldn't be perfectly loving unless there was another divine person for him to love. I've talked about this in several podcasts in the most recent one where I I'm actually interacting with Swinburne at a conference. I also discussed Craig's version and I think Craig's version is very poor because it just depends on this equivocation between perfectly loving as an action and perfectly loving as an attribute, like a character trait. So I agree that to be fully divine, you have to be perfectly loving. That's part of moral perfection, to be a perfectly loving being, also to be perfectly merciful, perfectly forgiving. It's a character trait, yeah, so whoever's fully divine has to have that. But this doesn't entail actually loving somebody else. It's a character trait. So I think the argument just trades on that equivocation. A perfect being has to be perfectly loving in the sense of having that as a character trait, but there's no reason to think that a perfect being has to actually be, you know, enjoying the best kind of love or something like that. There's no reason to think that God, you know, would be lonely unless he had somebody else or something like that. God's not a social animal like human beings are, right? If you take me or you, put us in, uh, in lockdown, in a solitary confinement, we won't flourish, we won't thrive, we'll kind of waste away. But there's no reason to think that God is built that way. Christians think that God didn't need to create, and so then it's possible that God should just exist alone. But the idea is that he's just blessed and kind of well off on his own resources. Now, if you say, well, isn't it better to be actually loving than not? Yeah, I think it's a great thing to enjoy love. I, I think it's very important. But you don't want to start saying that God has to have all great goods, all important goods, right? Because then it's going to be necessary that God creates. Here's a great and wonderful good, being the God over a marvelous cosmos like the one that exists. But it's not like God needs it, right? Even though it's a great thing, it's better to have that than not. It's plausible to think that a perfect being shouldn't need anything outside of himself to thrive. I agree 100%. What I was trying to do with the compare and contrast there is, look, there's this sort of this notion that it, it's greater to actualize certain goods versus just leave them as potentials, right? Like God existing alone. Creation is, uh, I see it on sort of equal total utilities, right? So a, a world, possible world where God exists alone is of equal, quote unquote, overall utility to the actual world that where God chooses to create, because otherwise it would be, if there was a lesser utility, it would be necessary God not create. If there is a greater utility, then it would be necessary that God has to create. Creation would be necessary. But the major point that I'm getting at is love doesn't have to be actualized in order, like actualized love is not greater than potential love. That's what I was sort of bringing up with the omniscience as sort of a comparison thing where you've kind of argued, well, look, actual omniscience, like a conscious omniscience where God, where Jesus actually knows everything is greater than subconscious omniscience or something. I, was, I don't really buy that argument. I, I think it's that would fail for the same reason that uh, this Swinburne's argument using love would fail to prove the Trinity. And I was just trying to use that as sort of a compare and contrast. It, does that make more sense? Like, Yeah, well, I think there's a difference between talking about the greatness of a being, and the tradition is you think that the greatness of a being supervenes on the essential properties of that being, 
then you can talk about the greatness of a, of a circumstance or a state of affairs or, or an event. I mean, if I have to pick between having no friends and having friends, I'm going to pick having friends. But when we're talking about the greatness of a being, it looks like we stick with essential characteristics. At least that's the tradition of perfect being theology. About Jesus supposedly being omniscient, but this is, um, you know, subconscious. I mean, the problem with this is he tells us he doesn't know the day or the hour. So he would be lying to us, or he would know that he knows it because he knows everything. So then it looks like he'd be intentionally lying to us when he tells us he doesn't know the day and the hour. That's not acceptable to me. Gotcha. So it's, it's sort of like a Bible thing. Like it, we would have to be reading in that what, what Jesus is really saying, that he's, he's, uh, he subconsciously knows, but he doesn't consciously know or something like that. And Of course, it goes beyond one verse because, you know, he's going around asking people questions and very much acting like he has limited knowledge, although he does have some supernatural knowledge that, you know, couldn't normally be had. Like when he sees, what is it, Nathaniel praying under a tree. But the New Testament, Jesus doesn't seem to know everything. That's why, for instance, he can pray in Gethsemane that he should be spared. You couldn't do that if you knew with certainty exactly what was going to happen. My views are based on kind of trying to take the whole New Testament and trying to focus on the clear verses. I know all the verses that are normally appealed to, to try to prove, you know, that he's fully divine and so on. I think in every case, there's a well-motivated first century reading, which doesn't imply or assume that. Gotcha. Perfect. Yeah. And yeah, I just wanted to ask that. So, so thank you for giving that because it does, it does relate to that Swinburne type argument for the Trinity in that. So, so yeah, I just wanted to get your take. So sorry for kind of going into the incarnation. of it. Yeah. Well, one more thing about the Swinburne move. Again, yeah, Craig does like the first part of, he thinks he can show that a single person God is impossible because it wouldn't be the greatest possible being because it wouldn't be perfectly loving. Just historically, this, it puts you in a bizarre position because the first person who made an argument like this was Richard of St. Victor in the high middle ages. And if this was such an obvious thing, you know, somebody would have thought of it before. Now, some popular preachers will say that this is an Augustine. In fact, Swinburne says it's an Augustine, but it's not. And I talk about this in my podcast episode where I'm interacting with Swinburne. I think it's called The Failure of Popular Anti-Unitarian Arguments. I discuss this passage in Augustine. It's, it's not about God being tripersonal. Um, it's about eternal generation. I mean, this would be news to the Jews, and honestly, it'd be news to the authors of the New Testament that suddenly this idea of a single person, which is God, is actually incoherent. This is the only God you see in the New Testament. Whenever the one true God comes up, the one God, the only God, the Almighty, that's the Father. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Dale Glover asks me, why should it be such a big deal if Craig's theory is late on the scene? After all, doesn't any Christian have to believe in progressive revelation? definitely believe 
as a Bible believer that God does use progressive revelation. He, he doesn't, or yes. he doesn't have to reveal everything at once. So, yes. So maybe as a question for you, why is it so bad? Let, let's pretend Craig, yeah, he, he's the first one who, who's come up with this Trinity monotheism thing. That doesn't necessarily in and of itself mean that, oh, well, it has to be false because no one else thought of it before. Or, or like, why, why is this argument from pedigree important for you? Part of my point is if someone comes along and say, oh, here's an obvious implication of this widely believed thing, and then hundreds of years, nobody makes this inference. Well, that's strong evidence that it's just not an obvious implication at all. Pedigree, I mean, if you're a Protestant, then you think that divine revelation occurred in the apostolic age, and that this resulted in the faith once delivered to the saints. And this is why we can roll back the papacy, transubstantiation, devotion to Mary, etc., etc. Those things weren't endorsed in these sources. In fact, it's assumed that you wouldn't do these things, that they'd be inappropriate. So a Protestant should not think that divine progressive revelation stretches up through, you know, the ecumenical councils. You shouldn't think that God is now revealing new things in the year 381 at Constantinople at the second ecumenical council. How is that being a Protestant? The Protestant view is that it's packed into the Bible. Now, Catholics and Orthodox have an advantage here. When they look at the Bible, and if you point out to Roman Catholic scholars that the Trinity is not in the Bible, a lot of times they'll say, that's right. So what? We don't think it's in the Bible. We believe it because it's taught by the one true church and it was taught later. So just ideologically, Protestants have to find all of what they think are essential claims. They have to be in the Bible. Otherwise you wouldn't believe them, right? We're Protestants. Yeah. And so they have to squeeze the text as hard as they can to try to get Trinity out of them. And, you know, it just doesn't work. When you proposed having me on to talk about Craig, I'm like, great, let's do that. There's a lot to talk about there. I don't mean to preclude talking about the Bible. It's just that that is kind of a whole conversation in itself. Gotcha. Because I understand that people like Craig are looking at the whole Bible and they're saying, well, look, if you piece these things together, then actually the Trinity is implied or assumed there. It's just maybe Christians didn't have enough language to kind of express this comfortably. And it took centuries of debate and finally they figured out kind of what they wanted to say. But so Christians are kind of in a way confused Trinitarians all along or Trinitarians who can't express their view well. And then thanks be to God, you know, they, the right language is brought about by these councils and these bishops. I understand that that's their view. I just think it's false. There isn't anybody before the second half of the 300s. If you don't count uh, modalistic monarchians, nobody is talking about a triune God until the second half of the 300s. The earliest example I've seen is from around the year 360. But really, it, it only becomes widespread in the time of the Cappadocians and Augustine, so 370s, 380s. But before that, you know, there's God, that's the Father, that's in all the old creeds. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, creator of the heavens and the earth. But God has also brought about, either before creation or eternally, this divine logos, which they think is the divine element in Jesus. And then there's a Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's still heavily disputed in the year 380. We know this because Gregory of Nazianzus tells us this. It wasn't really focused on, and so there were still lots of different views in play at that time. It's just a more obscure topic, I guess, in Scripture than the doctrine of God and the Son of God. 
I'm familiar with what I call the Catholic narrative that, you know, Christians were always kind of implicitly Trinitarian. They figured out how Trinitarian they were later. I think that's just false. I talk about this in a couple of podcast interviews on the One God Report podcast, but to just sum it up in like one little paragraph, you have the New Testament view, which I claim is my view, but even before the turn of the century, before the year 100, people start to speculate about pre-existence for Jesus. And then starting in the middle of the 100s, you have Logos theories come in. Then you have people reacting against the Logos theories. That's the dynamic Monarchians and the modalistic Monarchians. Dynamic Monarchians are basically people who have my sort of view. Modalistic Monarchians are like akin to oneness people. And then you had those two dueling streams in mainstream theology all through the 200s and deep into the 300s. You know, basically, the, the dispute was the Arius dispute was ended when the Roman emperor decided that the pro Nicene side was correct and just he ruled in their favor. And that was it. You're not Christian if you're not on their side. Yeah. And so that's precisely when you can date the first Trinitarian creed. And I argue this in my book, What is the Trinity? Mm-hmm. I think the 381 creed is implicitly Trinitarian. It's not very clear and explicit, but if you understand it in context, then I claim that it does presuppose a triune God. But the 325 creed doesn't, no earlier creed does, because there weren't any Trinitarians then. Gotcha, fair enough. Yeah, and, and you're, you're right. That, that, was, uh, that is sort of off topic, but I, I did want to just get your sense on you know, progressive understanding of uh, not even so much revelation, but progress, we progress in our knowledge of truths in, in general and that. So let's go back to what you, you want to focus on. So yeah, guest. progressive revelation, I'm totally in favor of. I mean, if you believe in the Old Testament and the New Testament, you have to believe in progressive revelation, right? Not only that, but you have to believe that God sort of encoded another message into the Old Testament, you know, verses which later would be understood to also have to do with Christ. And so you see this in the New Testament use of the Old Testament. But I don't think that as Christians, we're authorized to do that with the New Testament. We can't take fourth century ideas and say, aha, these fourth century ideas are the key to understanding these first century sources. It's just anachronistic misreadings. There's no, nothing encoded there. It's not dark prophecies. The New Testament books are trying to be clear. They're trying to proclaim their message openly. It's not waiting to be uncovered by scholars later on. When the Trinity's podcast returns, we discuss how uniquely on this Trinity theory, the divine attributes are divided up between the Trinity and the persons. At this point, I want to make sure we spend the, the most of the time on what you want to focus on. So I'm, I'm actually going to hand over the reins to you based on you, you gave about three objections to Trinity, philosophical objections to Trinity monotheism. So, yeah, I'll, I'll turn the reins to you and you can sort of probe me, ask me questions that can spark kind of a, a back and forth dialogue or that you want to get my take on. 
why aren't you if you're not why aren't you worried about the way that craig divides the divine attributes up between the trinity and the persons because to me that's unprecedented and the motivation is i understand it but it's it's weird and I, I think the division doesn't work in some cases so i don't know if you have a list of them in front of you i have a list from a book chapter from a book that maybe someday i'll finish writing that's on craig's theory so he notices that some of the traditional divine attributes entail being a person so mm-hmm. Being omniscient, that's to have perfect knowledge, right? Having knowledge involves having a first-person point of view, right? Being omnipotent, that means you have the greatest kind of power, and that's the power to intentionally act, so to act for a reason with some aim in mind. That's something that only a self can do, like an electron doesn't intentionally act, or a mountain or a dirt clod doesn't intentionally act, right? Only conscious subject does that with knowledge, perfectly good that's about your moral qualities basically you have perfect character and you have to be a person to be morally perfect right like a stereo speaker can't sin but it can't be morally perfect or your left foot it's just not the sort of thing that could have moral perfections like honesty trustworthiness sympathy other good virtues like that right so he notices that these divine attributes entail being a person and so he says, okay, well, then it's, it's the persons of the Trinity that have them in the strict sense, but then the Trinity has them derivatively. And Daniel Howard Snyder presses him on this point. I don't think he ever answers it. To have a feature, you have to be the kind of thing that can have a f- that feature. So the Trinity is not a, not a self by definition for Craig. So it just can't be all-knowing, all-powerful, and perfectly good. So what does it even mean to say that it's had derivatively? I understand this kind of thing when it comes to predicates, but not with properties. So property is supposed to be kind of an element or an aspect of a things, of things reality, you know, that involves its being a certain way. Your intelligence is supposed to be an attribute of you. You know, your intention to eat lunch later is an attribute of you. Not an essential attribute, but an attribute. But then there are predicates. Those are just linguistic items that we will say. Say you have a soccer team, okay? One guy on the team is, is really fast. One guy has good hands. And one guy is a great kicker. So you might say that the whole team has good hands or the whole team kicks well or something like that just because one of its parts does. I understand that. You, know, you say that I'm injured when just my foot is injured. Okay, but it's not literally true that the team is a good kicker. It's not the kind of thing that kicks. It it can't be a kicker. Teams don't kick. They don't. Teams don't even have hands. They can't have good hands. So yeah, we do sort of smear around um, descriptions between parts and holes. Sometimes, sometimes mm-hmm. we'll call a property of the whole a property of a part, and vice versa. But he doesn't put it that way. He doesn't put it in terms of descriptions. He puts it in terms of properties. To me, that just doesn't work. So I, I do see it in terms of properties as well. I, I'm not sure I see the the issue that you're you're getting at or the problem. So Craig William Craig in his article, and, and I'll send links to to the Daniel Howard Snyder as well as William Craig's uh, response for for the audience. Um, but William Craig, for example gives a, a chart where he 
it deals with uh, certain myriological. Uh, so, so myriology is just the study of parts and wholes and their relations. So, I think the example you give would be more akin to like a collection of individuals, like a pack of wolves or a team of soccer players and that sort of thing. And I guess on that level, what you're saying does make sense um, in in terms of, well, the the soccer player has this property of being able to kick hard. Does it make sense to say the collection has that property in light of that? Like, does the team have the property of being able to kick hard? And I guess that makes sense on a on a predicate level, on a, a on a language level. But maybe it doesn't make sense technically in in terms of ascribing that property to the team. But yeah, so, so the answer is William Lee Craig sees the the thing as an individual. So it's the type of thing that it is, perhaps. Like the team is not a, a substance in itself. It's it's I don't know a property thing. What what I don't know what you would call it. The team's a collection. So yeah, God is one soul with three persons. Uh, so it's an individual being or individual soul in relation to multiple individuals and that that's different than the team which is a collection of individuals yeah i mean he he does seem to commit to the trinity being not just a mere collection of things but a thing in its own right so a complex thing uh, a thing with components or parts but that look some sometimes you can transfer features of a part to a whole and sometimes you can't you know if you can't say the whole pie is pointy just because every piece of the pie is pointy. But you can yeah. say that the whole pie has mass because each portion of the pie has mass. Each piece of the pie has mass. So it just depends on the property. But Howard Snyder's point is, if it's a property which in principle can't be had by that sort of thing, it's no good to just to point out that the part has it, Right. Because yeah. again, to be all-knowing, you have to be a self. And he doesn't think the Trinity, or just put it even more generally, to be all-knowing, you have to have a first-person point of view. And he doesn't think the Trinity has that, but he thinks the persons do. As I understand him, he thinks that the Trinity as a whole is the greatest conceivable being. But this is traditionally understood as requiring those three qualities I talked about, being perfect in knowledge, power, and goodness. But if it's not a self, it doesn't have moral goodness. It doesn't have intentional power. It doesn't have knowledge. So what he wants to say is, well, but the Trinity has knowledge. It's a whole that gets that property from its parts. But it's not the kind of thing that in principle could have that sort of property. So I think what he's doing is, he knows he has to say there are two different senses in which the Trinity is divine and in which the persons are divine. And he doesn't want to say that one of those senses is merely honorific, like that you're just saying it's a God, but not properly so called, or you're saying it's a God because it's closely related to a God somehow. He doesn't want to say that. So what he does is he's, he's dividing up the attributes. He's giving the self-implying ones, well, at least most of them to the persons and he's trying to give the rest of them such as necessary existence eternal existence to the trinity although again it it doesn't work right he says in one place i think he says the trinity is the only being worthy of worship yeah but worship is an i thou kind of relation it's offered to a self from another self you can talk up and and honor uh something that's not a self but you don't properly speaking worship it, but it, his view must be that the Trinity counts as being worshiped because it has parts that are worshiped, namely the father, son, and spirit. 
Yeah, but it doesn't seem to be a, an appropriate object of worship. Any object of worship is a is a he, or in principle a she. Uh, that's right. So so for instance, Buddhists, uh, the type of Buddhists, which this isn't most Asian Buddhists, but the type of Buddhists who doesn't believe in any deities at all or any Buddhas as real beings, but they think that there's some impersonal ultimate. For a person like that, you know, their religion just doesn't involve worship. It's totally not devotional, you could say, because there's nothing that's an appropriate object. The, the, the Buddha nature or you know, the, the, the one true mind or whatever their ultimate is supposed to be, the truth body of the Buddha, that's not the kind of thing it makes sense to worship. And so that's why they don't. Of course, most Buddhists worship scads of beings, but that's another conversation. I think he's dividing up the attributes so that he can say that each one of these, the whole and the parts, have some important divine attributes. But the, it's, it's a really weird move because none of them has all the divine attributes. And he tries to solve that by saying, well, they, get, they borrow it from the other one. But then it, it doesn't seem to work uh, in, in a lot of cases, namely the Trinity borrowing features that only a self in principle can have. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Dale Glover brings up a couple of William Lane Craig's famous arguments for God's existence and how they might relate to his Trinity theory. Yeah, so I think this is a, a great point, especially in light of the, when you mentioned the ontological argument, because it's, yeah, this is, argues for a maximal great being. It's arguing for the Trinity itself. And technically speaking, you know, we, we define maximal great being as all-knowing and, and all-powerful, all but actually these are the properties of the, the people, the persons that make right. up the Trinity, yeah. not itself. So Take the argument that he's most famous for, his Kalam cosmological argument, right? All this Trinity stuff goes out the window, and what, what he's saying is that there has to be a self which chose to bring into existence the cosmos. That's the only kind of explanation that one could have. Yeah, That's I, great for my theology, but not for his. Yeah, well, again, uh, yeah, I, I know that some of the critiques is uh, he's inconsistent with himself in, in other places, like arguing for the soul or with the Kalam. It, it, it could be consistent. It's just a matter of him being smart about how he phrases stuff. So he could say that it it's consistent with one or more selves that are one being or something like that. So he, with the Kalam argument, he would just need to be smarter in, in how, terms of how he's phrasing stuff. I don't see how that's just a linguistic problem of how he states it. I mean, he thinks the Trinity is the ultimate source. The Trinity is not a self. It has selves as parts. I'm not sure. Yeah that that's consistent with the Kalam. The Kalam requires an ultimate source, which is a self. And he doesn't have one of those. He fudges it with switching to the parts. But why does it have to be a self? That, that could be a misnomer. Like, why couldn't it be cells or something? One 
being that's a self. Like if, if he just didn't use that word, it has to go back to a self. Like I, I don't see why. Well, okay. So the Kalam view is that um, there didn't have to be a cosmos. It seems possible for there to be a cosmos or not. And um, it looks like for something that doesn't have to exist, there needs to be an explanation for why it exists. And in fact, he thinks through cosmology, you can show that history only goes finitely backwards. He thinks Big Bang cosmology shows that the cosmos came into existence. And plausibly, he says, for anything that comes into existence, there needs to be a cause for its coming into existence. And there really kind of just conceivably are two kinds of causes uh, an impersonal cause, which would just sort of operate automatically. And then there, there would be like a, an eternal cause for the time-bound cosmos. Or he says it could be a personal agent where the being is able to exercise a power or not, just depending on what it freely chooses. And so that's where you get an agent. It has, it has to be agent causation, basically, is what Craig and Moreland argue. But that's causation by a self. That's what agent causation is. Now, someone like Swinburne, I guess he could just say, well, it's, it's really the father, but really the father is the ultimate source and not the Trinity. But he can say that because he has the father being the source of the son and the spirit. So he just, he embraces all that generation and procession tradition. I do sort of see it as just being uh, language. So I, I would just swap out. So forget about it. You have to argue for an agent singular causation let's say you have to go to uh, it proves that there's a personal being uh, the the trinity as a whole does have the property of being personal it has three persons that that make it up so i think it, the issue with the kalam could be solved by doing something like that and it only comes down to your main issue of okay well how do we how does the whole gain property like it, it's not always the case that a whole has certain properties in light of uh, the parts that make it up, but it, mm -hmm. it depends on you know, the degree of, of unity. And, and if we're saying God is God, the Trinity, God is a soul with these three sets of, of faculties fishing for personhood, then I don't, I don't think you can say it depends on the degree of unity. I don't think that's in general true. It works for some properties and it doesn't work for others. It just, it depends on what the property is, whether we think it's a fallacy or not. But look, in general, we do think it's a fallacy. Um, Take three selves, okay, and just imagine that they're unified as they could possibly be. You don't get a fourth self out of that, we think. You get something that might function like a self, you know, like these three buddies are so close that they could all answer an email together or something, and the person on the other end of the email might think it's one self, but they'd be mistaken. It's really three guys. This is a problem with social theories generally. It looks like God is going to be an as-if self something that could be mistaken for itself something that comes off like one but something that literally isn't one and um look, think think about um apologetics context people use the word god in all kinds of ways right sometimes a buddhist or hindu will talk about god and they clearly don't mean it to be a deity or a god right they mean some impersonal principle and so in apologetics context you'll say look the christian god is personal and what you mean by that is the christian god is a self that loves, that has plans, that has knowledge, right? That's what we mean. Now, when he says God is personal, what he means is it's not a person, but it, it has persons as parts. This is not a concept of personal that we, that we use. There isn't any other context where we think that persons who form a whole, like a family, for instance, or a group of three, three best buddies 
we don't think that the resulting thing is, is a person. He's just really out of step with, with Christian tradition, with evangelical tradition, right? Sure. But you're never going to see him preach that uh, God, God isn't a self, people. God, God is strictly an it. It's a something. It's, it's a thing. It's a real thing, but it's not a he. Yeah. That's just kind of, that's crazy talk to the average Christian in the pew. And the reason is the Bible. The one true God is a he everywhere in the Bible. It's a I, someone who speaks first person. Yeah, yeah. There, there are ways to, yeah. The the biblical debate. Uh, obviously, we would get into that in a, another show, kind of thing. But yes, there there could be. If you're right, that would need to be grappled with because the philosophical models do have to be consistent with the raw biblical data. And I know that you know William Lane Craig. He's aware of this, right? Like he he knows that there are different. He'll say that Yahweh refers to the Trinity as a whole, not not a he. Uh, but there are times where it does use a singular pronoun, and, and that's taken to be God the Father. So there, there are two, that's just sort of like a language issue as to figuring out who who is Yahweh. Is it God the Father, or is it referring to the Trinity? Yeah. Um, so, yeah. so yeah, that's... I, I know we're not, we're not focusing on the Bible, but I mean, there's, there's a really massive problem here for his view in the Bible, which should really strike you hard the more that you think about it. According to textual scholars, all the textual scholars, the evangelical ones, everybody, the term theos in the New Testament, it almost always means the Father. Mm-hmm. You can argue as many as eight times, maybe it refers to the Son. These are all arguable cases. But still, you know, more than 99% of the time, when, when they say God, the Father is to be understood. This is just biblical terminology 101. And there isn't any term in the Bible which was then understood to refer to the triune God, the, the Father, Son, and Spirit, whether a description or uh, a name or a title, nothing, right? And what's the chance of that if these are believers in a triune God, that they're only able to refer by their language to the Father and the Son mostly, and they have no word at all, no phrase at all that means the tripersonal God? I mean, the very first thing they would do is they would come up with a way to Talk about the tripersonal God, right? That's when they, the phrase, the Trinity, interestingly, in the time of Tertullian, when, when it's coined, or a little before his time, trios and trinitas, the Greek and Latin terms that we translate Trinity, they just mean a triad. So God is a member of that. The triad is God, the logos, and the spirit of God. Later on, around the time of Augustine, a little before, uh, now Trinity comes to be a singular referring term to refer to the one true God. Okay, that's because they were Trinitarians. That's one of several reasons why you know they're not Trinitarians in the New Testament, because they don't ever refer to this thing. And now if you say the, the standard apologetics comeback is, look, a concept can be implicit in a source without being explicit. Well, sure. You know, like omnipotence, for instance, I don't think it's a, well, it uses the term almighty could argue that that means omnipotence, but there are going to be divine attributes that aren't explicitly mentioned in scripture. And you can just try to deduce them from what is said and what isn't said, or even from perfect being theology. That's fine. But um, yeah, they don't, they don't have a word to refer to it, which would be the first thing they would do if they believed in such a thing. It's not presupposed either. You can understand all these texts without bringing in this triune God idea. But that, that is something that needs to be argued at, at greater length, for sure. Okay, so, so yeah, there, there are, uh, I guess, 
for the sake of this uh, topic that that you're saying, yes, realize the philosophical models have to be consistent with the biblical data and that sort of thing. And, and Dale Tuggy is absolutely right. Nor in the Bible does it teach an expl- it doesn't teach Trinity monotheism for sure. It doesn't teach the full blown doctrine of, of Nicene the Trinity as in the Nicene Creed. That these mm-hmm. are developments for, for sure that have come. Um, and the standard response is, well, the, there's the raw data. The, there's what's sufficient in there to derive that doctrine later on and that sort of thing. But, but yeah, in terms of philosophy, he's absolutely right. We, we have to make the Bible is primary. That has to guide any models that we come up with. If anything contradicts it, it goes in the garbage type thing. So, right. Yeah. And, and I also like, uh, yeah, on this divide thing, I, I, I think it's the model itself is coherent but we just need to be careful in terms of how we're phrasing the ontological argument the first premise of the argument and perhaps we've been a bit sloppy in, in saying oh max great being is omniscient is all of these things or something like that we, we should be a little bit uh we should phrase things more carefully and that sort of thing so well i mean it's craig's model is not obviously incoherent but I, I'm inclined to think it is incoherent because, again, he has a thing that in principle couldn't have properties having those properties. He has the Trinity having properties which only a self could have, and he, he's explicit that the Trinity is not a self. So I think, it, I think it has pretty severe problems. I'm also pretty worried about this idea that somehow the persons exist just because the faculties do, and the faculties don't make the soul a person which is how we normally think about cognitive powers or cognitive and emotional powers. Yeah. So, was, and that's sort of your second, uh, the second objection that you mentioned. Um, so I'm not sure that, again, the soul is the substance given, given how you sort of described how the, the soul is what uh, exemplifies these faculties or brings them about that are sufficient to say that there is a person this may sound stupid. This is my own idea. So uh, blame me if, if it doesn't work. But why couldn't the faculties, whenever there's a sufficient amount of faculties themselves, that could give rise to a center of self-consciousness, like sort of an emergent, you know, like in the same way that water wetness is, is uh, emerges out of H, H2O molecules being a certain thing. Couldn't personhood be a part, like emerge within the soul and that way you could have multiple sets of faculties and persons within the soul like i I just see the soul as for for lack of a better word the stuff that exemplifies these things and brings them into being it's yeah i guess i don't think that's obviously impossible what you said although i mean it sounds like you've demoted a soul from being you know the thing which is the the true subject of personal properties to being something like a stuff but look if if that's all that that this soul is why can't you have three gods that are composed of the same stuff simultaneously it's not clear that it should count as monotheism he wants it not to be a stuff he wants the soul to be a thing and partly the reason is that he wants there to be one divine thing he wants there to be one god and so the soul being a thing, he thinks, helps to secure um, monotheism. And then somehow the persons being in that, well, they don't, they're not gods. Again, <laughs> to say that the persons are not gods, 
that that's a huge problem in, when it comes to the Father in the Bible. This is quite explicit. The Father is the only true God, Jesus says in John 17, 1 through 3. And Paul says, for us, there's one God, the Father, in 1 Corinthians 8. So you, you can't have the Father not being a God. But that's his view. I mean, he's trying to make this, this come out coherent. And he's right that a Trinitarian has to say that the Trinity is the one God. A relative identity person is going to say the Trinity is, is basically just a plural referring term for the Father, Son, and Spirit collectively, not as one thing, but uh, refers to the three of them. And then you're supposed to say that uh, the persons are the same being, but different persons. And most of us who are trained in metaphysics don't think that that's coherent, because to be the same whatever we think implies being the same. And I think Craig would agree with this, by the way. Yeah. If uh, Abe and Abraham are the same man, that, that means Abe is a man and Abraham is a man and the one just is the other. Abe just is Abraham and vice versa. They're numerically identical. So if the father and son are the same God, that just means that the father is a God, the son is a God, and they're identical. But that you can't say they're identical. That, that makes nonsense out of the New Testament. If the father and son were identical, they couldn't ever differ in any way. And anybody most especially Trinitarians, but any Christian thinks that the Father and Son have differed from one another, so they can't be, at the same time, they've differed, so they can't be one and the same thing. Gotcha. Okay. Um, obviously, if we take the stuff, immaterial stuff view, there is this, how do we demarcate the soul that is God from other souls that are presumably made of the same immaterial stuff, I guess. So, taking sort of the traditional view then that where the substance is this thinking thing uh, as i think how you've described it before uh and it has these three sets of, of faculties fishing for personhood it, it would be uh, i'm still not sure what the issue is because there would still be that there is this thing that is knowing in virtue of it of its faculties knowing it's it's this thing that is exercising these powers if the thing, the soul, is, is the knower, then it is a self. If it's an intentional actor, it is a self. But that's precisely what he doesn't want to say. I mean, Dale, it sounds to me like you're, by wanting to treat the one who see here, what he calls a soul, by suggesting that maybe that's a stuff, it seems to me you're, you're kind of turning in the direction of what I call in my article Constitution Trinitarianism. So the view explored by Mike Ray and uh, Jeff Brower. And I have a paper on that called Constitution, Trinitarianism, and Appraisal. And I have a podcast that's relevant called something like, um, Does Your Trinity Theory Need Relative Identity? If you go that route, then you're implicated in relative identity. And then you're denying that principle, that analysis that I said. Or when you say that some this and that are the same something that means this is that kind of thing, that is that kind of thing, oh, and, it, and also they're identical. That's precisely what relative identity theorists deny. They think things can be the same something without being the same other sort of thing, because being the same certain thing doesn't require being identical. That's a hard saying. And again, most philosophers reject it, I think, with good reason. But People like Ray would say that the metaphysics of physical objects lend some support to these distinctions. They think that um, things can be the same physical object, but not identical. Okay, well, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I learned something there. I, I think that is something that I'm definitely going to need to rethink in, in my understanding. And 
uh, sorry, just to add one thing, part of the reason why they want to say that the divine substance is not, it's not a thing. It's just a stuff. It's like a stuff is precisely because they don't want there to be a fourth divine person. Of course, if you just have three divine persons, <laughs> even though they're so unified and so on, it's not clear why that would be a tripersonal God as opposed to just three gods. Because you're, you're saying they're to be counted as one, but yet you're still admitting that they're, they're different from one another, so they can't be numerically identical. Yeah, that, that just becomes how do we demarcate and that sort of thing. But yeah, I, I think that now that I've stated it or whatever, that's a problematic thing. So per, my thinking was, I think it was wrong. But again, I want to go back and rethink that. So, so sticking with Craig's thing where it's not a stuff, it's, it's this thinking, it's this thing. The soul itself is the knower, but it, it's knowing in three senses. I mean, I think his view is really that you're supposed to say that it knows because it has parts that know. But it itself doesn't know, because he, he realizes that entails that it would be a self. So strictly speaking, the Trinity doesn't know anything, but you're, you're supposed to describe it as knowledgeable or all-knowing because it has parts that are. But that's not clear why, right? It's Why should that property of a part literally be had by the whole? It looks like it shouldn't. So we're just it looks like we're papering difficulties over with words at this point. That was one of the points I saw in your your nine part blog and that sort of thing. And I was I was looking in William Lane Craig to see if he kind of tackled that head on. It, it, there is sort of a vagueness as to how it goes back to I, I guess that point that we were arguing before, where this yeah I guess I I don't have a totally good answer for that. I I just think that this this soul is exercising its its three faculties and it it is knowing. It's exemplifying these faculties which become centers of self-consciousness, perhaps in some kind of emergent way, where, um, and then they are knowing, and the Trinity is knowing in light of having these constituent parts, because it's it's unified as one substance. I, I don't really know how to... Uh, that's all I have to say. When the Trinity's podcast returns, I raise another related issue with Craig's Trinity Theory. There's something we haven't talked about yet, and I think it ties together with a couple of things that we've mentioned. There's an interesting exchange between Daniel Howard Snyder and William Lane Craig, and I think it's kind of revealing. And by the way, everybody should read Daniel Howard Snyder. He's one of the, in my mind, he's one of the leading Christian philosophers nowadays. He's super brilliant. He was a student of the great Christian philosopher William Alston, who passed away about a decade ago. And uh, he wrote the Trinity entry in the Routledge Encyclopedia, which is well worth your reading. You can find that on his website. But um, Howard Snyder presses him really hard on the fact that he doesn't think that the one true God is literally knowledgeable. It's, it's not a self. And 
Howard Snyder just is working from the perspective of perfect being theology. And he's like, come on, this is just the concept of a monotheistic God. It's got to be perfect in every way. And some of those features imply being a self. And Craig throws back really hard. He's like, oh, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but he says, you're crazy to assert so boldly that the concept of God requires a Unitarian understanding. Trinitarians have always denied that God is a single self. I think he's demonstrably wrong about that because of what we talked about in the beginning. What's true is that Trinitarians say three persons about the one God. That's demanded by the tradition, right? However you understand that, you have to say that, okay? That's what he's right about. What he's not right about is his assertion that all Trinitarians have always said that the triune God is not a person, because many have thought exactly that for the reasons I talked about in the first part of our conversation. So the ones who say the persons are kind of roles that God plays or personalities of God, and really they think the persons aren't selves, but there's really one divine self there. Those are precisely Trinitarians who think that there's one self and that God is a self and that the persons are less than selves. So it'd be people like Craig is interacting with, Brian Leftow, uh, who's now at Oxford University. He has this very out there Trinity theory on which there is one divine self, but it lives eternally in three different ways. And he calls them life streams. And he thinks those life streams are the persons, but it's really all just one agent, one self one intelligent being living its life simultaneously in three ways is not a bad way to summarize it. Right. So then Craig is just mistaken about that. I think he's, he's getting defensive about his theory, but I, I think he's not got a broad enough perspective of the landscape. Yeah, I, I saw that. Uh, so, and again, for, as I said, for the audience, I'm going to be linking to both articles so you can read Daniel Howard Schneider his 30 page article. And then William Lane Craig has an 11 page response to what Daniel said. And Dale Tuggy's got a response to, to William Lane Craig's response and uh, in his blog. So all of that will be available for, for people to read for themselves. But yeah, one thing I think we should address is, is your first objection, because even if we don't have all the, we have a general sense that this Trinity model could be logically coherent. There, there are some problem areas in terms of equating a substance to self and, and that sort of thing. But William Lane Craig, we present this model of Kerberos. I know in your blogs, this is something that I, uh, to, just to be honest, I, I didn't find, this was a weak thing uh, on your part, in my view, where... Okay, so we have Kerberos, and William Lane Craig, in his response, provides real-life two-headed examples, a turtle, a two-headed calf, and that, and that sort of thing, where we have one being, quote-unquote, clearly one being, where there are individual persons within that one one physical being. And, and your sort of counter was to say, well, no, the, this isn't one being with multiple person, you know, turtle persons or whatever mm-hmm. it is. There are actually multiple beings that are just conjoined. They have overlapping bodies. And you gave the example of Eng and Chen, uh, Chinese. uh, It's really Daniel Howard Snyder I'm stealing this objection from. Yeah, the conjoined twins. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think with, with the Eng and Chen, they, they just share their vital organs. I actually agree with you that, yeah, the, these are clearly two beings that are just conjoined in a certain way. So if we cut them apart, then, yeah, that that's not Trinity monotheism. Is a different story when it comes to the turtles and, and that sort of thing because of the degree of unity. However, when I was even thinking about this, I actually do think that we would think even those turtles— 
and the, I think he gave an example in this talk of a human with another head just attached at the neck or something like that. Yeah, I was given a real life example. Yeah. Excellent. So real life examples are even even more helpful. Yeah, it's not just a body with an extra head. I said it kind of looks like that, but it's really, yeah, it's, it's two sisters with overlapping bodies. Gotcha. Yeah. And I think the thing that helped me see your point is, well, when at the general resurrection, is this the being like we would, there's one human being here or something. And no, we would picture God fixing that because they're, they're mm-hmm. not supposed to be right. Mm-hmm. Human beings mm-hmm. singular. Yeah. And I think that William Lane Craig's answer to that is persuasive in my view. He says, yeah, but that's because look, there's something, there's a defect here. And we know from our experience that human beings or turtles are supposed to be totally, they're not supposed to be multi-personal being, but we could conceive something like Kerberos is by essence meant to be a multi-personal being. And if God is like that and being one soul with a multi-personal being by essence, then that is coherent as well. Even if these real life examples, well, well actually though, that isn't a multi-turtle being, that's supposed to be two turtles. So yeah, do you, do you see that difference as being helpful at all? And I mean, the analogy just doesn't do what he wants it to do. I mean, if we encountered a being like Kerberos, mm-hmm. we would think, oh, that that's so unfortunate. You know, those three dogs were born as conjoined triplets. And if you just want to specify that there's one dog essence there, I mean, not how we understand dogs, right? I mean... Dogs aren't persons, but they are supposed to be conscious beings, and it just doesn't look like one. It looks it looks like three of them with not enough body to go around. But when we're talking about conceiving, so yeah, we, we do know about dogs, so we, we might infer that looking at Kerberos, that the, it's the same as the two-headed turtle or the two-headed calf or the two-headed human. But... I can conceive of an essence where, pretend we've never seen dogs or anything like that sort of clouding our judgment. We, we don't know that dogs are supposed to be singular personal beings. I can conceive of, no, dogs are supposed to be three-headed beings by essence. That's just what the dog kind of thing is, and that seems conceivable to me. I don't think it's obviously impossible, but again, I don't think the analogy does what it was supposed to do. It's not an example that's plausible of, you know, a dog with three centers of consciousness. That was the point of the example. Couldn't there be a single being with three centers of consciousness? Yeah, I mean, maybe. But then, look, uh, that's a concept of a, of, a, of a strange kind of person who has three thinking faculties. I think in a, in a draft of my book chapter, I give a silly uh, thought experiment. You encounter the uh, magic uh, genie lamp. And he asks you what you wish for, and you say you wish you could think in two different ways. And so the genie snaps his fingers, and now you've got two more brains. And uh, he couldn't think of where else to put them, so he put them in your rear end. So you got a left, left and right brain, plus you got the one in your head. And now you can think in three different ways. That doesn't make you three persons. That makes you a person who can think in three different ways using three different brains. Maybe your experience would be very bizarre because there would be... Uh, kind of three, if this is possible, I'm not sure it is, three points of view at once. But see, I mean, you see what I'm doing. I have one subject, which is the owner of the three powers. Hmm. And it's those powers that empower me, the subject, to think, right? But I've got three different empowerments. But 
that's not how he's thinking of this quote soul that's God. He doesn't think that those faculties enable God to think in three different ways. He thinks each one of them somehow gives rise to a person. And so then there's three persons that are parts of God. Yeah, so there are definitely three owners. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the mystery factor that we were addressing in two that, uh, about the centers of consciousness and that sort of thing. So that it, it's not just that, oh, there are three, there's one owner with three sets of faculties. There are three owners in this model. Here's one way to put it. I understand what it is for a soul to have sufficient powers for being a person. I understand that, right? It's, it's partly cognitive powers. It's partly powers of willing and choosing powers of relating personally to another. I don't understand what it is for a soul to have faculties that don't make the soul a person, but somehow give rise to a person, which is part of that soul. I, I don't know if that's possible or impossible. It's not anything suggested by scripture to me either. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> no, there, there's nothing, um, that speaks on, on this notion or something like that, that this language is just foreign to the to the Bible. So I think that has to be admitted. But um, yeah, well, well, that's good. That, if you're agnostic to it, that that means it's an open possibility, assuming that there, the other problem, there aren't other problems with it and that sort of thing, as we've been discussing. One thing that I don't think you did bring up, but is and it's up to you if you want to go into it all. But um, I know that Daniel Howard Schneider addresses uh, the diminished divinity problem. Mm-hmm. So Trinity monotheism, just just for the audience, so I didn't mention this in my introduction. Okay, so the divine nature. So we're talking about a kind nature. So it's all the essential properties of a kind of thing, like a dog kind of thing or mm-hmm. a cat kind of thing. And with Trinity monotheism, we have we do have this weird aspect whereby... Only the Trinity as a whole is the instantiation of the divine essence, a divine nature. But by the same token, Willing Craig and, and uh, J.P. Morling, they don't want to deny that the persons are fully divine. They also have a, a divine nature. Well, they paper it over in language, honestly. To be fully divine is to be a god. That's just, just like to be fully human is to be a human. So they deny that the persons are fully divine. Only the Trinity is fully divine, which as Leftout points out, you're not supposed to say that any of the persons are anything less than fully divine, but they do. So they're going against Catholic tradition when they say that. He calls it Aryan. I don't think that's a helpful label, but his point is that it's just some kind of divinity that doesn't entail being a god. He's right about that. That's exactly what the Father, Son, and Spirit are. They make an analogy with cat parts. Mm-hmm. The cat is feline, but in a different sense, the tail of the cat or the skeleton of the cat are feline in the sense that they're parts of a cat. And so the persons are divine in that they're parts of something which is divine. That's just denying that they're fully divine. And this is from somebody who thinks that the most important thing in the world is to say that Jesus is fully divine. So these, <laughs> these things don't go together. Um, the way William Lane Craig uh, talks about this, because he does respond to this issue. So essentially what the problem is, look, there are two ways. If this model is, Trinity monotheism model is correct, there are two ways to have a divine nature to, or to, um, to be considered divine. So there's the sense in which the Trinity is divine. That's the, f- the full divinity, right? Of which being a triune being is an essential part of, obviously, God the Father, God the Son, or the Holy Spirit, they're not triune, so they lack this property. 
So in what sense, how, how could they be divine if an essential property or aspect is to be triune? They say, well, look, one can have a divine nature in two ways, either by exemplifying the, the things of the Trinity or the way William Lynn Craig will say it is in virtue of having another property like omnipotence, uh, omnipresence or whatever it is. So it's, it's in, or sorry, in his words, being a distinctive part, not just a part, but a distinctive part of that. And I think he gives the analogy of, you know, with that soccer team, the persons are parts, distinctive parts of that team. But like it, it, it doesn't yeah. make sense to say that the player's nose is a, even though it's a part of the team, it's not a distinctive part. Yeah. Of but yeah, but look, this is all purely a verbal save. I mean, this two ways to be divine thing is a distinction made up purely ad hoc to save the theory. I could make moves like this as a biblical Unitarian. If you say, Dale, do you believe in the, in the deity of Christ? And I say, well, yes, I do. He said, what? I thought you didn't. Well, there's two ways to be divine. Uh, one way is to be a God. Yeah. I think only the father has that, but there's another way to be divine, which is to be the son of God, who's always doing God's will and who's sent by God. And that's what I mean. That's a perfectly good way to be divine. And you're going to say, well, you're just playing with words. We know what the traditions always meant by being divine. It entails being a God. And you don't think Jesus is divine in that sense. You don't think he's a God. All right. To say that uh, the cat skeleton is just as feline as the cat. No, it's not. It's not a cat. <laughs> it's this talk of natures and essences. There's this primary sense of the word in which to have an essence or a nature is to be a thing of that kind. And then there's any number of secondary senses where you're just a thing which is somehow related to that thing with that essence in the primary sense, right? So you can talk about human human tastes in food or human clothes or human love of music. None of these things are humans, but they're associated with humans. They're distinctive of humans. They're characteristic of things which are human in the primary sense, right? Mm -hmm. So to call a cat's skeleton feline is just to say that that's the sort of skeleton which a cat is supposed to have or something like that. But again, it's, it's just a purely verbal save. They're just preserving the tradition of saying that the persons of the Trinity are, are divine or fully divine, but they don't mean it. This is one reason why people like Leftow are just unimpressed, because they, they think it's important that, uh, for instance, the Son should be divine in the sense of being a God, the same God as the Father. Yeah, I think, believe it or not, though, I, I do think that this works to save its coherence, whether one thinks it's ad hoc or not. Perhaps one could further qualify it's not just they're distinctive or unique, but that they're relevant to the essence, they're essential distinctive parts or something like that, whereby anyone can, this is unique to the God, to God, to the divine kind. Um, uh, you probably don't want to say a cat skeleton is essential to the cat. I mean, you can come up with some weird scenario where somehow you manage to extract the cat skeleton and you just have this blob cat that's still alive, you know, with no bones. But, um, yeah, look, coherence is not the only issue. And I, I think sometimes Christian philosophers set the bar way too low. They're just like, hey, if, if this, you know, is plausibly coherent or isn't obviously incoherent, then I've done my job. But no, there's way more than that that's required. We've already talked about fit with the Bible. That's one thing. 
You can't just come along and say, hey, this is part of this grand, glorious tradition that dates back at least to the council in 381, if not farther, and then just be saying something different than that tradition. That's not honest scholarship. So do you think we have a duty, Trinitarians have a duty to prove that their models are true in some way? Like We want our theology to be true, sure. Yeah, oh, no, but but we, need, we need a coherent narrative you know, for sort of how this fits into church history, that's hard. That's, that's very hard to come up with. Most people don't try that. Yeah. I, I think that, yeah, there, there are those, those elements and that sort of thing. And hopefully if it, I hope you're enjoying your time, we, we can definitely, let's do that. Let, let's address the biblical and historical angles or, or something in a, in a future show. Yeah. Well, all right. So, yeah, I think I think the audience has sort of gotten a good sense of what Trinity monotheism is and what some of the the main issues lodged against it are, and how William Lane Craig and that uh, sort of counter it, and and what do those make sense or not? There is one issue that I think I need to rethink and and think about on my end uh, from Dale. So I thank you for for your take on that, and yeah, hopefully you've had a good time on your end there, Dale. Yeah, good conversation, Dale. Appreciate it. Excellent. All right. So, yeah, thank you so much uh, again to Dale for coming on. I hope the audience enjoyed this. This week's thinking music has been the track Polly Bear by Little Glass Men. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org where you can listen to or download that entire track. Also, be sure to check out that blog post for a whole bunch of links that are relevant to things that we discussed in this episode. If you love the Trinity's podcast, please share this episode on social media like Twitter or Facebook. And help other people to find the podcast by giving us an honest rating and review in the iTunes store for your country. You can also support the Trinity's podcast by giving a certain donation per episode. If you're interested in that, please visit patreon.com slash trinities. Finally, let us know what you think. Give us a comment on the blog post for this episode or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash trinities. The Trinity's podcast is supported by and made for thinking believers like you. Thanks for your support, prayers, and encouragement. Thanks for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.